For those of you who don't know me, my name is Aziz Nahas. I'm one of the pastors here in H2O Church. And if you're new here this morning, we especially want to welcome you. We're really glad you could be here with us. And if there's any way that we can serve you, please let me know or put that in your Connect card. Before I jump into the teaching this morning, I wanted to make a special announcement and a special request of all of you. As some of you already know, uh, our dear sister Rachel Leinbach is going in for her second bone marrow transplant uh, on February the 4th in two days. And uh, in the hopes that this will finally cure her of cancer, uh, which has uh, progressed. And this transplant will be a little different than the first one. In this one, uh, she will be getting uh, don uh, bone marrow donor donated from an unrelated donor. So it's going to be a riskier transplant. Uh, there are more uh, dangers involved, uh, and, it, and it could be a lot more challenging for her. Um, and so we really, uh, and I, I've asked her about this, so she, uh, she knows that I'm asking you to do this, is could you please join us in praying for her? And not just in two days. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, they think a bone marrow transplant is like a liver transplant or a heart transplant. It's not. The, the transplant is very quick. It's just an infusion of the bone marrow into the body. Uh, the hard part is the part before and after. Um, and so she's going to be in the hospital probably for about four weeks. And then even afterwards, it's going to be a long process of recovery. And so if you could please, would you join us in praying for her, uh, praying for her healing, praying for her... Um... Sorry, this is bringing back memories for me <laughs> with my sons. Um, pray for her safety. Um, pray for her strength and encouragement through this process. Um, and the second request I have for you is if you could, uh, uh, she needs people to help her and her family during this time. So if you are interested in that, there are a lot of ways that you can help. You may not think, well, I, I don't know how to cook. There are other ways that you can help. So if you're interested, uh, please email Lisa Scott. And this is her email address. Well, it'll show, there we go. Uh, for those of you who are listening, it's on our website. And uh, she can let you know how you can help. Or you can even just write in your Connect card, um, Rachel, uh, or help Rachel, and we will get back to you about that. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and pray for Rachel right now. Would you join me? Um, yeah, dear, dear Heavenly Father, we just, we just care about our sister Rachel so much, and, um, and, and thankfully, you care about her even more. Uh, and so we just cry out to you um, to guide her safely through this uh, process. Um, be near her. Comfort her during the hard times. Uh, and when she's afraid, remind her, as you did Mallory, uh, that you are with her. And she has ultimately nothing to be afraid of. Help us to also walk with her and beside her through this process. Help her to know she's loved and she's not alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, two Sundays ago, sorry, um, <clears throat> so now I can't see. <laughs> so two Sundays ago, Dave, in his teaching, said that he thinks every one of us is looking for something, right? Do you remember what it was that we're looking for, he said? He said, we're looking for a king that we can serve who will take care of us. And this is true. But there's something else I've noticed about myself and about humans in general. 
We resent having to obey a king and submit to a king, don't we? We want the benefits without the submission. How can we get that? The answer is being whispered to us and shouted to us all the time. Power, power. The answer is power. With enough power, we think that we don't need a king to take care of us because we can be our own king and we can take care of ourselves and then we don't have to answer to anyone else. And this is the natural evil longing of every human heart. So what happens when we're offered power, even a little bit of power, we grab it and we justify doing anything to hold on to it. And at the same time, there's something else going on in our natural evil hearts. We believe that we are the most important thing in existence and that everyone around us exists to benefit us. How many of us are going to admit that? Not me. <laughs> None of us want to admit that, right? When you read it, it's so ugly. And even writing it, I, I said, no, no, that, that's not true. Am I really like that? No, maybe there are a few people. But really, it's true, isn't it? When we look into those ugly places in our heart, we see it. We see it even in cute little children. And if you haven't seen it yet, just wait. <laughs> or you know what? Just go ask your parents and they can tell you <laughs> where they saw it. Guess what happens when you combine this kind of entitled attitude with power? An evil tyrant. I've seen three-year-old evil tyrants <laughs> and 60-year-old evil tyrants. This is what happens. And the problem is that every one of us at one time or another are going to have some power. So what are we going to do with it? How can we keep ourselves from giving in to the evil instincts that lie in each of our hearts to become that tyrant? This morning we're going to look at the life of a tyrant and the hope even for him and for us. Let me go ahead and pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is just so rich. It's so amazing. I've read it so many times and I still find myself surprised by it, blown away by it. It's just a testament to your wisdom and power and presence. Um, please speak to us freshly this morning from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at and learning from the life of the Jewish kings. And as we saw last week, because of the sins of Solomon and the people, God decided to tear away the kingdom from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Not all of it, but ten of the twelve tribes and give it to a man named Jeroboam, who had been an official in Solomon's government. So from that point on, there were two Jewish kingdoms. There was the southern kingdom, ruled by descendants of David, with the capital of Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom, in, uh, it was called Israel, uh, and its capital was Samaria, and sometimes it was called Samaria, and this was led by a succession of kings and dynasties. And as time goes on, we learn that the southern kings... Some of them are good and some of them are bad, but all of the northern kings turn out to be bad and turn away from God. This begins right away with the first king, Jeroboam. He realizes that even though he is the king of the northern kingdom, the only temple for God is, guess where? In Jerusalem, in the heart of the southern kingdom. And when his people go to the temple, as they're supposed to, as, as um 
the people of God, when they go there to offer sacrifices to God, he fears that they will remember King David and his descendants, and they will turn back to David's descendants as the true kings of Israel, and they will kill Jeroboam. So he creates an alternate religious system for the northern kingdom. He creates two golden calves, and he tells the people that these represent the gods that brought them out of Egypt. He places one calf in Bethel, near the border with the southern kingdom, and one in Dan, far to the north of the southern kingdom. He tells his people that they no longer need to trouble themselves and go all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. Instead, they can go and worship and make sacrifices at these calves. He also made worship sites on high places throughout the land. He also made priests out of anyone who wanted to be a priest as an alternative to the God-ordained priesthood of the Levites in Jerusalem. And he made alternate religious feast days on the exact same days as the feast days in Jerusalem. (laughs) So people would have to make a choice. And so Jeroboam led the people further into idolatry rather than bringing them back to God after Solomon. As a result, God destroyed Jeroboam and his descendants and replaced them with another king. But this king was evil as well. And this continued with king after king going from bad to worse. At this point in the story, it's the year 874 BC, 57 years since Jeroboam. It's the beginning of the reign of the seventh king of the northern kingdom. His name is Ahab. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Even non-Christians have heard of Ahab, right? Like Moby Dick, and it's just a, 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 an ominous name. And rightly so, when you look at his life. This is how he and his reign are described in 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab went further into idolatry than all the northern kings before him. He married Jezebel, the princess of the Sidonians, who worshipped Baal, and Baal's mother Asherah, the mother fertility goddess. Instead of creating a religious system of idolatry and pretending it was the worship of God, like Jeroboam did, he openly worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. You know, in the Bible, God compares idolatry to adultery. He says, I am your husband, my people. I'm married to you. You are married to me. We're in a covenant relationship. And when you go after idols, it's idolatry. And see, Jeroboam, he led the people into a a secret idolatry, a secret affair, pretending that they were still married. But you know what Ahab did? He just went right out in the open. He didn't even pretend anymore. And And he's like right in God's house. Can you imagine? And he said to God, oh yeah, by the way, you know, why don't you make yourself useful? Go make me some dinner. Or go out and work and make yourself useful while I'm here with my, my whatever, mistress. That's what was going on. Can you imagine God's anger? Ahab built a temple for Baal in Samaria. 
right out in the open, in a place of worship for Asherah, and he and Jezebel let all the people in a complete and open rejection of Yahweh, the one true God. They rejected the commands of God and instead promoted a culture of self-promotion, injustice, oppression of the poor, sexual immorality, political power plays, alliances with pagan neighbors, reliance upon fortune-telling and sorcery and child sacrifice. And because they hated God, they persecuted the people who loved God. Jezebel had every prophet of God in the land hunted down and killed. Only 100 were saved by a sympathetic court official who hides them. But as we've seen throughout the stories in Kings, God does not leave himself without a voice. A voice to warn the people, to call them back to himself, a voice to hold the kings accountable. In this case, that voice was heard most powerfully through the prophet Elijah. No matter what Ahab and Jezebel did, God protected Elijah and provided for him and kept him as a constant thorn in their flesh, speaking truth to power, holding them accountable for their sin. And we don't have time to read all the amazing stories and inspiring stories of Elijah and his dealings with Ahab and Jezebel this morning. I encourage you to read them for yourself, starting in 1 Kings 17. It's an easy read. It is really powerful. This morning, I want to take a look at just one of those stories that takes place near the end of Ahab's life in 1 Kings 21. To set the stage, in 1 Kings 20, we read how God gives Ahab a great victory over the king and armies of Samaria who had been... of Syria, sorry, who had been trying to conquer Samaria. God had wanted Ahab to completely destroy them, especially because of their pride and how they had spoken against God. But instead, Ahab had struck a deal with Ben-Hadad, the Syrian king, to let him live in exchange for some cities and favorable business agreements. God was angry with Ahab and sent a prophet to tell him this in 20... Verse 42, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. Now for Ahab, this prophet basically ruined his day. (laughs) All those great feelings of victory and achievement he had were gone. The next verse tells us this, and the king of Samaria went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Oh, those words are so rich, aren't they? Just just roll off the tongue. Vexed and sullen. You can just picture it, right? What does that mean? He was frustrated. He was angry. He was in a bad mood. So how do people with power, nearly unlimited power, who feel entitled, handle their frustration and anger at their job? Sometimes they come home and take it out on their family, right? In chapter 21, we read this. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed and turned his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. 
Yeah, that's how I picture it. <laughs> like a pouty, spoiled, rotten little kid. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So Ahab comes home and sees Naboth's next door vineyard. He wants it. But more than that, I think he wants a win. Frustrated with God constantly controlling every aspect of his life. He wants to be in control of something. John spoke well about that last week, right? He can't do anything about God, he's discovered. But he thinks at least he can get a piece of land from one of his subjects. I also think that Ahab believes that he deserves that land. After all, isn't he the king? Aren't his needs and desires more important than anyone else's? Don't all his subjects exist to support his reign? But even in the seemingly small thing, Ahab is frustrated. Naboth refuses to sell or trade. This is the land that God has assigned to Naboth, his ancestors and his descendants, and Naboth will not give it up. It would be a form of denying God. So once again, because of God and God's stubborn people, <laughs> Ahab can't get what he wants, what he thinks that he deserves. Once again, the story tells us he becomes vexed and sullen, this time lying on his bed and refusing food. In comes Jezebel. She's like, what's your problem? Ahab tells her. She can't believe it. Seriously? Aren't you the king? What does she mean by that? Well, for the kings of Israel, they had limitations by the law of God on what they could do. We've read, we've heard them, right, the last several weeks. And there are others as well. And even though Ahab was an evil king, he still seemed to feel some constraint by those laws. But Jezebel was from a pagan nation. In her culture, the king was the law. He could do whatever he wanted and was accountable to no one. So she was saying, why are you letting this guy get you down? You can do whatever you want. In light of that, she tells Ahab, look, cheer up. I'll take care of it. In the following verses, we read how she arranges for Naboth to be falsely accused as a traitor and stoned to death. Okay, but what about the property? Well, it turns out that when a traitor is executed, all his property is turned over to the king. And guess who that is? Ahab, conveniently enough. We keep reading, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Listen to the language even that she uses to describe what Naboth had done. She says he had refused to give the land to Ahab for money. It's like she's saying, oh, that Nahab, so ungrateful. Ahab, you were so generous to offer him money for the land. You didn't have to do that. But instead of being grateful and accepting your generous offer, he threw it in your face. How arrogant. He deserved to die. Now, you can imagine how happy this makes Ahab. He's probably thinking to himself, wow, what a woman. Now, she understands the use of power. I made a right choice there. Take that, Naboth. Take that, God. <laughs> he rushes down to his new property to, to enjoy it. But as we've seen throughout these stories, God sees what Ahab and Jezebel have done, and God is angry with them. With each sin, they have piled up God's wrath against them, and now they were going to feel the full fury of his wrath. 
we read this. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Wow, that's a heavy judgment, isn't it? God has just told Ahab that not only is God going to kill him and his wife, but they aren't even going to be buried. The dogs will eat their bodies, which is a horrifying fate to people at that time. Ignominious and shameful. And God is going to bring all, he's going to kill all of Ahab's male descendants and anyone belonging to Ahab's family, wherever they might be. How is Ahab going to respond to this pronouncement? Well, based on how he's responded in the past, I was expecting that Ahab would get angry with Elijah, right? And even try to kill him. But instead, I was completely surprised by what Ahab did. And it's funny, I've read the Bible many times, but I just didn't remember this at all. And when I read it, I was like, wait, what? Verse 27, And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. In those times, when a person tore their clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted, it was a sign of repentance and mourning before God for their sin and of asking God for mercy. Ahab actually felt sorry for what he had done and the life he had lived. And not just for these consequences, I couldn't believe it. I mean, why had Ahab finally listened to Elijah when he had never done that before? We don't know why. This story doesn't tell us. And then I thought, ah, wait a minute. He's just faking, you know. Maybe he's sad about these consequences, but he's not really humble. There's no way he's truly sorry. But then I read the next few verses, and I was even more blown away. Verse 28, 29, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. God sees into Ahab's heart, and God declares that Ahab has truly humbled himself before God. It was real. And notice this beautiful symmetry. This, is, this happens so often in the Bible, I just love it. Notice the beautiful symmetry between Ahab's response to God's judgment now as compared to his earlier response to God's judgment after the battle with Syria and Naboth's refusal to sell the land. Earlier, it says that Ahab became vexed 
and sullen and dejected, and he refused to eat. Why? Because he couldn't get his way. He was motivated by pride and entitlement. Now, it says that he is dejected and he refuses to eat. Why? Because this time, but this time it's different. This time it's motivated by humility and grief over sin. And as if Ahab's response is not amazing enough, consider God's response to Ahab's repentance. He actually has mercy on him. It reminded me of the story of Jonah. Remember, we, we studied that a few months ago and how God had mercy on the Ninevites when they responded. And the way I'm responding to the story is the same way Jonah did to that. It's just felt wrong to me. Does it feel wrong to you? How could God have shown mercy to Ahab after all that Ahab had done? Is God just going to let a few crocodile, crocodile tears affect him? I would have told Ahab, uh, sorry, too late. But thankfully for all of us, I'm not God. <laughs> Instead, our God is merciful and compassionate, even to someone like Ahab, even to sinful people like me and you. I want you guys to close your eyes a moment. I want you to take some time right now and consider your sin. Maybe it is like that of Ahab, where you have used your power to take what you felt you deserved from those under your care like your children or people you manage or people in the small group you lead, consider your pride and selfishness and hunger for power and sense of entitlement. Now, keep your eyes closed and consider the awesome mercy of God who stands ready to show mercy to all who will repent no matter how evil they have been. What do you want to say to God? You can go ahead and open your eyes. You see, as with all the stories you've heard so far, this story points us ultimately to Jesus, the Christ, our Lord and Savior, the ultimate expression of the mercy of God. Over the last year, I have paid close attention to the impeachment proceedings. Now, on the surface, it seems to be the trial of the President of the United States. But on a deeper level, I think it is bringing up a larger question for me, and I think for the country, whether we realize it or not, what is the right use of power? For Ahab, the right use of power and his privilege was to accumulate more power and privilege, even if that meant taking away what little power and privilege his people had in order to add to his own. And Ahab is not the only one who thinks this way. This is human nature, right? The Bible tells us in James 4, verses 1 and 2, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. 
Each of us naturally believes that we are the most important person in the universe and we are entitled to be treated that way. And the more power we have, the more we tend to act on that sense of entitlement. Instead, how does Jesus answer the question, what is the right use of power? In Mark 10.45, speaking of himself, Jesus tells us his answer. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul describes Jesus' answer in this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. For Jesus, the right use of power was to willingly give up his rights, his power, his privilege, so that we, the powerless, would have his power, and so that we, the sinful, might have his privilege. As God, have you ever thought about this for a moment? As God, he actually was entitled. (laughs) He's the only human who could ever actually say that. He was entitled to all power and privilege and obedience from all humans. (laughs) He could have stayed in heaven and rightly demanded from us everything we own and even our own lives and given nothing in return. And he would have been right in doing so. But instead, look at what he did. We read about this in Philippians chapter 2, from verse 3 through 8. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus made himself poor so that we who are poor might become rich. He gave up his power and privilege And glory in heaven came to the earth as a lowly slave in obedience to his father, dying on a cross for us. And in doing so, he took upon himself our sinful status and the penalty for our sins so that all who believe in him can be forgiven and receive his righteous status. He was our ransom. Again, take a moment and consider yourself in the positions where you have power and privilege in your life. And you may think, well, I'm young. I don't have anything like that. Think about it. You actually might. You're not that young anymore. And I'm guessing you're starting to experience power and privilege and status. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're in a position of authority at your work with people under you, even one person. Maybe you're leading a small group in our church or have a leadership position in an organization on campus. Maybe you're an RA. What is the right use of that power and privilege that you have? Is your life demonstrating Ahab's answer or Jesus' answer? Are you acting like Ahab or are you acting like Jesus? Here's one way that you can tell. And and this is important because, you guys, this is so sneaky. Sin is so subtle. works its way into our hearts and minds and so that we don't even realize how sinful and evil we are being. 
But here's one way to tell. It's hard to fool our emotions. Our emotions, they're the canary in the mine shaft. They so often reveal what's going on deep inside of us that we're not even willing to admit to ourselves. So here's one way to tell if you're acting more like Ahab or like Jesus. Look in the mirror. How are you emotionally responding to the people you are over, who you have responsibility for? Are you vexed and sullen? (laughs) Just remember those words. They're hard to forget. Frustrated and angry with those people under your care? Resentful that they're not doing what you want them to do? And you've probably gone into Ahab mode. (laughs) You think that those people exist to meet your goals. And it's right to use them to get what you want. And listen to this. Guys, sin is so sneaky that this even happens when we think that we are pursuing God's goals and trying to get what God wants. In fact, that makes it even easier for us to justify using other people to reach those goals. That's why even church leaders throughout history have committed terrible, evil acts upon the people entrusted to their care using this same kind of Ahab logic. So how do we emotionally respond when we're using our power like Jesus does? Well, Hebrews 12.2 tells us, because of the joy awaiting Jesus, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. If you're considering it a joy to suffer and give up your power and privilege for the people in your care, then you're probably operating in Jesus mode. So which is it? And, and it doesn't, it's not always one or the other, right? Depends. Are you walking in the Spirit or not? Are you vexed and sullen with the people under your care? Or are you joyfully enduring the cross for them? Now, if you've slipped into Ahab mode, it's not too late to repent. (laughs) Just look at how God responded to Ahab. Tell God you're sorry. Ask him to forgive you in the name of the one that God has given for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus. If you've not already done so, believe in Jesus that he's your Lord and submit your life to him. Believe in Jesus that he's your only Savior and trust in him to save you. Ask God to change you, to save you from the Ahab inside of you to make you like Jesus in all your positions of power and privilege. I, I didn't want to close without just being really open with you guys. I'm not like telling you this as if I'm from on a high and I've <laughs> I'm, I'm always acting like Jesus. The more I've been challenged by this, the more I've seen it in my life over and over. And it's very troubling how insidious it is. I so often have seen Ahab coming out in me. And most of all, I've seen him come out in me, in my family. I, I find myself naturally viewing myself as more important than my wife and my children, entitled to the highest priority for everything in our home. The best seat, the newest clothes, priority use of any device in our home whenever I want it. Oh, you're watching your favorite show? Sorry, I have to watch the debates. Please move along. Eating ice cream right out of the container. Yes, I'm one of those dads. And on and on and on. You can just ask my kids. They will be glad to tell you. 
And the biggest area I've seen Ahab come out in me, and I don't know why this is, frankly, is in the area of food. And sometimes I like to justify it. Oh, you know, I, gr I grew up in a war-torn country. I was a refugee. That's why it has such a hold on me. I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. But I think the real reason is because <laughs> sin has got such a hold on me. And it's so insidious. Like, even just this morning, I, I notice almost every Sunday when I teach, I come in, and I'm, you know, I, have, I had some breakfast, but then I see all the refreshments laying out there, and nobody else is here yet, so I have the pick, right? And I find myself looking for the biggest apple fritter, the biggest dusted donut, and I'm thinking, oh, and I reach for it, and then I think, oh, but wait a minute, nobody else has had a chance to have these yet. There may be somebody who's really looking forward to that apple fritter this morning. Maybe I should just not do that. Maybe just have one of the small ones. But then this voice in my head says, What? You're the pastor. You're preaching. Dude, you are totally entitled to the biggest apple fritter in that tray. Take it. Do it. <laughs> Eat it. And to my shame, I have some time. Sorry for some of you who are looking forward to it. But the biggest place I've seen this happen is in my home with leftovers. So my wife makes amazing food. And she usually makes more than enough for one meal. And often, I'm the one at home at lunch. And I open the fridge, and there it is, this delicious food. And so I eat it without thought to my children, who, when they come home, open the fridge, and to cries of disappointment, discover it's gone. It's all gone. <laughs> and they're like, what? Where, where's the whatever, fill in the blank? Oh, dad ate it. Dad ate it? Again? Seriously, dad? Can't you leave us some food? So what's my response in that moment? Is it compassion? Is it apology? No. Very often I hear that inside. Ahab rears up. What? Are you serious? I'm your father. Who do you think bought that food? I am the king in this house. I deserve every leftover. If I leave you some, I am being gracious. And you should be thankful. Otherwise, you should, not, you should keep your mouth shut. And just be glad you have any food at all. That's what I think. I don't like to admit it. I don't at all like to admit it. But over the years, <laughs> the Holy Spirit just keeps working on me, and my sons keep reminding me, and I've slowly had to admit they're right. <laughs> and it's to my shame that it has taken so long. I've had to tell God and my sons many times, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Yes, yes, I had bought that food. That is true. There's a sense in which I am entitled to it. <laughs> but as my oldest son reminded me so well, he's so sh sharp. He said, Dad, in buying that food for our family, you have given up your sole rights to it. This is what it has to, it has to get into like legal arguments in our family. <laughs> and he was right. I realized I had chosen to become poorer, that my children could become richer. And guess what? That's a good thing. In fact, isn't that what parents are supposed to do? We make ourselves poorer so they might be richer. We make ourselves hungrier so they can be filled. We make ourselves more tired so they can have life. We give up our health, our time, our energy, our happiness, our comfort so that they can have every good thing in life. And that is right and good. And wonderfully and oddly enough, it creates in us an even greater joy than if we'd held on to all those things and now I'm wanting to take all that back? That's the Ahab in me trying to take control. And I need to resist him. I need to be filled with Jesus. 
And this is last week, I, I just want to share with you, I know it's a small thing, but for me, it made me so encouraged, gave me such joy. Uh, I came back from uh, some dinner, and, and I had some, these delicious wings, and I love wings. But at dinner, I thought, oh, you know, my youngest son loves wings, so I'm just going to bring them home for him. And that wasn't a hardship. I was already full, you know, so great. So I bring him home to him, and I come home, and I say, I say oh, look, I brought you wings. And he's so happy. He's like, wow, Dad, thanks for thinking of me. And I said, sure. He wasn't hungry then, so we put him in the fridge. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, you're, you're following. I can see. So the next day, sure enough, you know, so often he packs a lunch, and I had assumed he'd pack those chicken wings. I go to the fridge, and I open it up, and there's the container. I'm like, hmm. I open it up. They're all in there. I'm like, wow. Well, I mean, it couldn't hurt to have one or maybe two. Or... And besides, you know, he left them. Obviously, he didn't really want them. So it's probably okay. And, and, and the voice of the Lord came to me and said, Aziz, Aziz, please, listen. <laughs> Don't listen to that voice. <laughs> listen to what your sons have said. Listen to what I keep telling you. Just close the box, put it back in the fridge, eat something else. Thank God I listened. And that day in the afternoon, my son comes home. He opens up the fridge. I'm in the other room, and I heard him. He's an exclamation, <laughs> which is kind of sad, but he's like, wow, the wings are still here. <laughs> you know you know what he was expecting, sadly enough. And the wings are still there. And he's like, and I was like, yeah, I, I thought you might like to eat them. He's like, wow, Dad, you didn't have to do that. That was really nice. Thank you. And I... <laughs> I'm telling you, I mean, I know it's a small thing, but it made me so happy to have given him that joy, to have given up those wings so he could have wings. <laughs> I don't know. What will it take for, <laughs> what will it look like for you to live as Jesus and not as Ahab with the power and privilege you have in your life? Let us set our eyes on Jesus' example and imitate him. Let us set our faith on Jesus to forgive us and help us to follow him. And he will. He will. He wants it more than we do. Even more than our kids do. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you so much for uh, just this time in your word and just to hear you speaking to us. And yes, Lord, you, you do challenge us, but it's for our good. It's not because you want to bring us down. It's because you want to lift us up to become like, more like Jesus. Help us to see the way of Jesus in our positions of power and privilege. Help us to act like Jesus and not like Ahab. Help us to be shining lights in this dark and selfish world. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.